Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor Tim Barone at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Well, Merry Christmas. And in the words of the angel, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Uh, Jesus goes by many names uh, in the scriptures. He goes by Messiah, Savior, Master, King, Servant, and Teacher. Tonight, as we celebrate the arrival of God into this world to save humanity through the babe in Bethlehem, we're going to meditate on the four names given to him in the prophecy that Isaiah spoke some 700 years before the Christ child was born. We'll make connections to his earthly ministry and then also how he interacts with us today. These names are Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. We'll begin with the last one, Prince of Peace. We see in this prophecy from Isaiah chapter 9 that there is a coming king. It's an announcement of an arrival of a king. And this is going to be good news for the people who are used to death and destruction, who are used to warfare. And so it says in Isaiah 9 that people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light, and those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned for fuel in the fire. So we see this prophecy is about a king who's going to change the fortunes of these people. This is a prophecy in particular for the region of Galilee, which we know as Syria in that area. Uh, But they had seen lots of warfare. Uh, But here is a call to rejoice and be glad like you just won the football game. Because this one would undo the oppression that had fallen upon them and He's going to undo the violence and the warfare that had plagued them for so long. He's going to take all the garments rolled in blood, the warfare garments. He's going to burn them in the fire. He's going to take the boots used to invade countries, the tramping, tramping, tramping of invasions, and they will have no use anymore. And so the call is to rejoice. And so this is the beginning of what we should think about in the Prince of Peace Uh, And there's a key to this, and if you have the text open, or if you want to, I'd encourage it. But in the middle of this text, he says, as in the days of Midian. And I think this is one of the keys to understanding this passage. Because you're thinking, what happened in the days of Midian? I don't know. (laughs) But here's what happened. In the days of Midian, there was an army coming to uh, invade Israel, the Midianites, And God raised up an unlikely hero named Gideon. And Gideon was called to defend Israel against the Midianites. And he was called to bring an army together. And and so 32,000 people uh, answered the call. Fighting men came to fight. 
But God said, you know what? The people that are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying my own hand has saved me. In other words, God said, yeah, I'm not going to give you the victory. You have too many people on your side. And I don't want the Israelites to say, we did it on our own power. And so this is what God does. He says to Gideon, tell the people, if anyone doesn't want to fight, if anyone's afraid to die, go home. And so 22,000 soldiers leave. And then God says, with the 10,000 left, have them drink from a stream and test them. And there's going to be some that raise the water to their mouths. And there's going to be some that drink uh, stooping down. And he said, take the, one, take the ones that lift the water to their mouths. And there was all of 300 soldiers left. And so God said, yep, that's enough. Take your 300 soldiers and go defend. And so he took the 300 soldiers and they had a plan. They hid torches under uh, pottery. You may know the story. They break the pottery. The Midianites go into chaos mode and they destroy themselves. But the point of this is that in that day, no one could say, oh, we did it. We, we're the victors. We're the winners. But rather, everyone had to say, God did it. The victory belongs to God. The zeal of the Almighty has done this. And so it will be with this Prince of Peace. So it is with Jesus. The next uh, verse is pretty stark and shocking in Isaiah 9. How would God defeat the enemies and bring an end to oppression, an end to warfare? How would he do that? Well, how do earthly rulers bring an end to wars? Generally, it, cause, it takes more war, doesn't it? That's the earthly way of doing things. In fact, our own country began that way. To end oppression, there was a revolution. It cost many lives. There was many garments rolled in blood. That's how earthly uh, peace is made. Think about it in your own life. Uh, if you're being bullied on the playground, what, how do you get away from that? Get a bigger bully. Okay. Or if you have conflict in your family, if you're not getting along with your brother and sister, what do you do? Try to get people on your side, right? You fight fire with fire. That's generally the way our wars are won. How peace is fought is by causing more struggle. How would God do this? In Isaiah 9 verse 6, uh, this is a shocker. For unto us a child is born. For unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. How is God going to save these war-torn people? By sending an infant to the front lines. That's what the prophecy says. A child would come. That's how God would bring peace. God sends an infant. No armies, no mighty warriors. A child, poor, in a manger, wrapped in spare cloths. This is the mighty champion who will bring peace to the world and finally end war. His arrival means no more war, but how would he accomplish this? We learn that it's by not shedding other people's blood, but by shedding his own blood. Isaiah 53 continues this prophecy about Jesus. 
It says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And Colossians 1 tells us it another way. It says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. How will God make peace in this world, make peace with sinners, make peace with those who wage war? He would send his son to shed his own blood so that he could take the warfare upon himself. He would make enemies into friends by sacrificing his own life publicly so that there's nowhere left for the revenge to go. There's no one left to hate because he has borne the revenge on himself and he's carried the hate upon his head. And those who were once his enemies now are invited to be a part of his eternal kingdom, forgiven of their sins, forgiven of their transgressions. This is how God has made peace in the world. And this is how God has made peace with you. See, the Bible tells us that we're all enemies of God. We're all captive in the darkness under Satan's dominion. We ourselves rebel against him. We don't want him as our king. So how does he make peace with us? He shows us his love. He doesn't come with a sword and force you. Instead, he comes and sheds his own blood so that you can see his forgiveness and his mercy. So no one can say, we've done this, we've accomplished, we've succeeded. Rather, we say, the zeal of the Lord God has done this. Only God could have come up with this plan to save the world and bring us reconciliation. That brings us to our next name, which is Almighty God. The ancient people of Israel would have been shocked to hear this title given to this coming king, right? This Prince of Peace. To call any king Almighty God was blasphemous, and even the pagan nations didn't really do this. And so it would have been a shocker. And even the rarely faithful people of Israel would have known better than this. And so uh, even Isaiah himself says about God, Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And so here, in this royal announcement, if this divine prince is not actually God, it's terrible blasphemy, and the people would have a right to rebel against that idea and to hate this young prince. And so they did. When Jesus was born into this world, he showed himself to be God. He raised the dead. He healed the sick with his words. He walked on water. He stilled the storms. And he even testified about himself that he was God in the flesh. Listen to what he says in John chapter 8. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I'm older than Abraham. So they picked up stones to kill him. Later in John chapter 10, he says this, I and the Father are one. He says, I am one with God the Father. And so they picked up stones to kill him. And when he was on trial, they asked him if he was the Christ, the Son of God. And he says, I am. You'll see me coming in power uh, and on the clouds in glory. And this is why they crucified him. 
because he claimed to be God. Listen to what Hebrews chapter 1 says about Jesus. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus' word is what upholds the universe. It's what upholds your minds in the cells in your body. It's the words of Jesus. He is the Almighty God. And yet when he's walking the earth, people reject him. Still today, people reject Jesus, even though he's God in the flesh coming to bring peace. It's amazing to think about this, that when they mocked Jesus, it was his will, his word upholding the laws of physics that would allow those sound waves to reach his ears, right? It was when they spit on him, it was Jesus upholding their bodies, upholding the laws of gravity that allowed that spit to travel onto his face. When they crucified him and pierced his hands, it was the same hands that formed the sea and the dry land. It was the same hands that knit them together in their mother's wombs. Uh, When they pierced his side, it's only because he allowed them to do this. He allowed himself to be sacrificed. Only the Almighty God could live this perfect, vengeless life so that he could bear our sins, that he could be our Savior. And when God raised him from the dead, he proved that all of his teachings were true. God raised Jesus from the dead, vindicating him and proving that he was Almighty God, the only one who could accomplish this victory. And no one can say, oh, we've done this. This is what we've done. Rather, God has done it through an unlikely hero, Jesus Christ. The next name is Everlasting Father. This is not in regard to his person in the Trinity, but rather with regard to his character. Um, Often kings were thought of as fathers of their nations. They're the ones who protect, who provide, who bring guidance to their nations. Uh, Lately, in contemporary conversation, the world is beginning, I think, to wake up a little bit to the fact that fathers are super necessary, that kids who have fathers are super blessed as they're protected, they're guided. And those children who have fathers are benefited greatly in their lives, all coming down to whether or not they have a father who loves them and builds them up. Isn't it beautiful that Jesus is called everlasting father, that he, in his character, steps into this role of protection and guidance for his people. Think about this. When he was walking the earth, do you remember? Uh, When all those people were following him, 5,000 people were following him. And the disciples said, you know what? It's getting late. Send these people away to get something for themselves to eat. Uh, Fathers, wouldn't it be great if you could say that to your kids? These kids are hungry. Send them away (laughs) to get something to eat for themselves. But what did Jesus say? No, you give them something to eat. And he had them all sit down and he fed them with loaves and fish till they were full. He provided for his people in love. 
When there was a woman caught in adultery and she was dragged before a mob of people who were going to kill her, stoning her to death, what did Jesus do? He stepped in front of the mob. He said, let the one who doesn't have any sin cast the first stone. He corrected her. He said, go and sin no more. But he did not allow vengeance to fall on her that day. Like a good father, he steps in. He protects and he corrects. Similarly, uh, one of the last conversations he had with his disciples, he said, I am going to prepare a place for you. Maybe you had a father who made a home for you. Maybe you had a father who built a home for you. Jesus steps into that role when he provides an eternal dwelling for security for us. And so, friends, do you need a father in your life? Do you need a father figure who will teach you when you don't know what to do? Who will protect you when you've been foolish? Who will correct you and give you wisdom and give you security? Because you have one in Jesus as he comes to bring us to security, to give us his divine wisdom. He has come to protect us, to provide for us, and to build us, home, us a home so we can dwell with him eternally in security. And that brings us to our final name, Wonderful Counselor. You know, if you want to know what to do in your life, you should talk to the oldest person you know that's still sentient. Because they have wisdom. They know. They've been around the block a few times. They've seen more decades, more history than you. Don't ask your peers. They're as confused as you are. Ask those people with some gray hair. But even their perspective is limited, isn't it? It's limited to 70, 80, 90 years maybe if they're strong. But God's perspective is not. So when this prophecy calls Jesus the wonderful counselor. It's saying his counsel to you is wonderful because his perspective is eternal and because he has way more power than any earthly counselor. In Colossians, it says this about Jesus, that in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you're foolish, ask the wonderful counselor. Or in John 8, Jesus says this about himself, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. Jesus gives us counsel that no earthly counselor could give to us because his perspective is divine and from heaven. And so earthly wisdom might tell you, do with your life whatever you want. It's your life. Don't tell anyone, don't let anyone tell you that you need to change Live your truth. But the wonderful counselor would say to you, unless you repent, you will perish. Unless you follow me, you have no life. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. His wisdom speaks because he knows and he has seen. He knows he's the only way to God the Father. An earthly counselor might tell us that we should choose ourselves. If we have a conflict in life, we should cut off those people who are causing the problem. We should ghost them. We should seal off 
a wall so we never have to deal with them. They don't disturb our life. But what does Jesus, the wonderful counselor, say? He says, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. As you have been forgiven, you must also forgive. Earthly wisdom causes vengeance to go round and round again. There's never going to be peace. But in the wisdom of Christ, we see a broader picture. A picture of God seeking to reconcile the whole world to himself, including those people who make you upset. We see that we have been called into a mission with Jesus to help reconcile the whole world to himself. Earthly wisdom often teaches us chase money. Find your security in your wealth. Is anyone getting a little nervous about that these days? Inflation makes money disappear. It makes life difficult. It makes us a little bit more vulnerable. We should begin to suspect that it won't do everything that we hope it would do. That it cannot save us from disease and death. That it cannot be our ultimate security. And so the wonderful counselor tells us this before we've come to the conclusion ourselves. He says, fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens, in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, no inflation evaporates. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. An earthly counselor might tell us, do everything you can to optimize your health. Avoid sickness, avoid illness. Spend all your money to preserve your health and lengthen your life. Jesus says, whoever loves his life will lose it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus says, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. You see, no earthly counselor would tell us these things, but the divine, wonderful counselor will, because he has the knowledge, and not only that, he has the power to fulfill these promises to you. Jesus brings the real solution to our lives' problems. He brings the one solution that you cannot ever find on your own and that you cannot ever supply on your own, and that is eternal life. That is why he is here. He came to save us from the deadly disease of sin, which he took upon himself and to give to us his life. He counsels us to leave all things that would get in the way of our relationship to him, to obtain this treasure. He counsels us to see the folly of chasing other things, and he reveals the divine wisdom of his ways. This is the God-made flesh come to save us and grant us life. He's the ruler that was prophesied long before his birth, 700 years before. The wonderful news of Christmas is that he has been born for the world. But it's even more wonderful when the angels say, say this, that for unto you has been born a Savior. Unto you. 
so that you may live in his kingdom of peace, so that you may be reconciled to God. Jesus is born to you so that you can find that the almighty God is not a tyrant, but a friend who comes to lift you up and save you. He is born to you. He's born to you so that you can know his fatherly goodness, so that he can guide you into wisdom and protect you from your sin and your folly, provide for you security. He's born to you so that you can hear the wonderful counselor's voice and in believing his words, have life in his name. As we gather around the manger, let's fall down before the one who is rightful king over all creation, the Prince of Peace, who has come to claim us as his own. Amen.